live from Earth. It's Space Radio. I'm Paul Sutter, astrophysicist at Stony Brook University and the Flatiron Institute. And for the next half hour, you're, that's right, you, you, your agent of the stars. We've got an exciting show for you today where we have a guest. Shh, it's a secret. It's amazing. But listen, this show lives on listener questions, even for the guests, especially for the guests. You think I prepared an interview? You'd be out of your mind if you think I prepare interviews. No, I don't. I don't know what I'm going to talk to this guest about. It's up to you. We record every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern here at Spaceman Studios in New York City. So leave a voicemail to get yourself on the air or you can join the Space Cadets Tuning in live from around the world, including but not limited to Bristol, Indiana, Cincinnati, Ohio, Netherlands, Alberta, Canada, Orange County, California, Christchurch, New Zealand, Vapava, Slovenia, Pell City, Alabama, and Dubuque, Iowa. And there is more, I promise. You need to go to spaceradioshow.com. How New Jersey getting in at the last second right there. You need to go to spaceradioshow.com for all the links, all the old episodes, all the show notes, all the stuff. Now my guest, this guest, we were supposed to have on before. And of course, I mean, it could not be funny. It's Paul Geithner. He's the Deputy Project Manager Technical for the James Webb Space Telescope at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center in Greenbelt, Maryland. Now, you know, I I'm can't wait for the JWST. You also know I kind of teased the JWST a lot for being like late and over budget. Paul was supposed to join us last month, but because of some technical issues, we he had to cancel and we had to postpone. So how appropriate is it that the guy who's going to talk about the delayed spacecraft was delayed? It's all in good fun. I want to introduce Paul properly. He is, his career at NASA began in 1991 when he was hired into the Hubble Space Telescope Flight Systems and Servicing Project at Goddard. He worked on the Hubble's replacement gyroscopes and was the instrument manager, manager for the CoStar Optical Correction Instrument, remember that, in the near-infrared camera and multi-object spectrometer scientific instrument. Paul joined JWST in 1997. Wow, that is ancient history. As the program's mission systems engineer, since then he has held, held several positions with the program, including web instrument systems manager, program executive, and web observatory manager before becoming the deputy project manager technical in 2011. Please give a warm welcome. Everyone is clapping, Paul Geithner. Everyone is clapping. You cannot hear them. Because it's only my audio is connected, but trust me, all the space cadets are giving you a very, very warm welcome to the show. Hey, Paul. All right. Hey, this I've, I've been really looking forward to this this uh, this discussion. What's the latest with JWC? Where are we right now, as of Thursday, August fifth, twenty twenty one? So we're in final assembly and stowing for shipment. Um, we're just putting some of the last bits of hardware on the observatory. It's been fully tested environmentally and functionally. And we're, there's just a few parts we're putting on now and we're stowing it up in its 
shipment configuration and we'll be ready to ship it to the launch site in French Guiana um, soon. Got it. So, so you're packing it up. Uh, yep. you're, you're, you're getting the, the, uh, you know, I just moved. So I have a lot of experience with packing things up. You know, you got your bubble wrap, you got your, your tape, you got your cardboard boxes. And so when is UPS, uh, come swinging by to, to pick this thing up? Uh, probably late September. Um, that's when we will in the middle of the night, um, close some of the freeways between Redondo beach where the final assembly took place um and uh down near uh long beach where our ship will pick us up so we're going to go by ship down the down to uh, through the panama canal and into the port de paracaibo which is um basically a port right off the Karoo river that uh payloads and rocket parts come to uh get to the spaceport there the the um Guyana Space Center in French Guiana. Um, yeah, we uh, we go into a big shipping container. It's bigger than a than an eighteen wheeler tractor, and it's this really nice, environmentally controlled can, basically. And uh, we purge purge it with dry manufactured air and control the temperature, and it's really safe in there. So it's going to be cocooned in that shipping container, and we'll roll it down the freeways at. 10 to 15 miles an hour as fast as it goes. Well, the California Highway Patrol will take care of us and um, and then we'll get on the ship and we'll we'll go. And it's about a two-week journey on the ship. Um, but yeah, we're 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 just in the final final little bits of packing and getting ready. And and before the observatory leaves, we're we're flying some uh, uh, you know test equipment down ahead of time. And we'll have a big team down there ready to receive everything. Um, 55 day launch campaign once the observatory actually arrives. And, uh, it's basically all about configuring the observatory for launch. So we do, we do one last set of comprehensive tests just to make sure everything got through shipment. Okay. Which it should, cause that's a pretty benign environment compared to the launch. And, uh, and then we have red tag, green tag, which are things that you take off before flight and things that you add before flight. And, um, one of the biggest things we do and the more most hazardous thing we do is fuel the observatory the observatory needs fuel for um, mid-course correction to get us into our final preferred orbit and it also needs fuel for uh, periodic station keeping because where we're going lagrange point two sun earth lagrange point two is a metastable point it's not a garbage collection point like l4 and l5 are um so you need station keeping to stay there and uh, just a little bit. And then, and also momentum management because we need to rebalance our momentum wheels, that, which are actually the things that point the telescope, but to, uh, to unload momentum when it gets built up after multiple pointings, we have nothing to push against. Hubble uses magnetic torquer bars and can push against the magnetic field of the earth. So it doesn't need fuel, but we need to, we need a reaction force. So we have fuel for that too. So, and that's ultimately what will limit the life of the telescope is, um, is fuel, but, but yeah, fuel it up, check it out after shipment, fuel it up, do the red tag, green tag stuff, stick it on top of the Arian five rocket and put the fairing over it, roll it out to the pad and launch it. And then hope it actually makes it. What is the expected lifetime of the observatory given that fuel limitation? Right. So. So there's requirements and expectations. So the requirement 
is a minimum of five year science mission, but we're putting enough fuel on board to, and that's after the six month commissioning period. We're putting enough fuel on board for at least 10 years after commissioning is over. And you know, that, that 10 years assumes uh, we put in margin for, uh, if we get a really off nominal flight from the Ariane and rocket need to use a lot, a lot more fuel than, than what we would expect to do mid course corrections, um, things like that. So, um, you know, requirement is five year science life, 10 years of fuel, both after commissioning is over, which is six months. But, um, you know, if things go normally, we could have much more than 10 years worth of fuel. Got it. Got it. And, and and so hopefully I think what everyone hopes is uh, this instrument, like there's so many hopes and dreams riding on this observatory, on this instrument. It's, it's been delayed so long. And it's been so expensive that, that, that we hope we get a lot of really, really cool science out of it. What are some of the reasons uh, just why was it delayed so much? Why, why did this become such a massive uh, albatross for, for NASA? I mean, the first, the first, uh, the first launch date that, um, that NASA made a commitment to Congress uh, about was 20, a 2014 launch date, you know, back when we were formulating the mission and it was all PowerPoint slides and, you know, technology development in labs and there was no flight hardware and we were still designing things, you know, we were hoping to get off the ground in 2011, but that was, you know, in, in the late nineties early 2000s um by the time we had made a commitment to congress because we we'd gotten to um our technologies had been developed and demonstrated to a high level maturity and we had a we had a design baseline we could we had committed to 2014 so um basically what happened was uh you know web web's got a lot of risk uh, development risk because there's so many technologies we had to uh, advance or even invent to make the mission feasible. And, um, and it's a hard mission. I mean, it, it, two things make it really hard. Um, it's size, which meant it had to be built. Uh, it's too big. It, you know, the science requires an aperture of at least six and a half meters to have the sensitivity and resolution to required to, to do meet the science objectives. Things like seeing the very first luminous objects in the universe that ended the cosmic dark ages, for example. So, to do that, you need at least a six and a half meter filled aperture. Well, to do that, it has to be a foldable aperture because uh, there aren't any commercially available, commonly available rocket fairings that are more than five meters in diameter. So we, and, and to make the mirror lightweight, if we use the Hubble lightweighted primary mirror technology, which is really lightweight glass technology, but it was still like an order of magnitude too heavy. So we had to, um, you know, invent uh, the new technologies to make a segmented beryllium aperture possible. And uh, uh, the deployment adds so much complexity. There's so many moving parts and so many mechanisms. So size is one thing. The other thing is cold. You know, this is an infrared telescope. Infrared light is heat radiation. If you want an infrared telescope to be uh, exquisitely sensitive, it needs to be super cold so that it's not looking at its own heat signature. So it's not blinded by the thermal background of its own temperature. So in order to be background limited by the 
zodiacal light, you know, the background infrared, the infrared background of the inner solar system, dust in the inner solar system, the, uh, the uh, optics have to be colder than 60 Kelvin, which is minus 213 Celsius, which is like minus 380 degrees Fahrenheit, something like that. It's cold. It's very cold. Very cold. You know, uh, nitrogen will snow, fall out of the sky as snow at those temperatures. It's very cold. So um, uh, size and cold makes it tough because, you know, everything shrinks when it gets cold. We built this thing at room temperature. It has to be the right, the mirrors have to be the right figure to nanometer levels of, of um, precision and accuracy. Um, so we basically had to build it exactly wrong at room temperature. So it'll be precisely correct at cold temperature. That's hard to do. You have to test it to verify that in big vacuum chambers where you get the inside of those chambers mm -hmm. to those temperatures. So those things are hard. They take time. If you've got any, uh, any little issues along the way, and there's always issues with any spacecraft, but with this one, there's a lot because it's so complicated and it's a continuum of advancements that were required. You know, it takes longer. So we didn't have, it's a long answer, but we didn't have adequate reserves set aside to uh, cover such contingencies. And so that turned into time, turned into time. And we took longer. And, um, you know, some of the problems were really uh, esoteric and, you know, complicated. And some of them were just like incredibly simple and relatable, like you might <laughs> do something dumb in your own garage kind of thing. So you know, it's a combination of things, but we're here. Um, it's, it's going to be an exquisite machine once it's launched. Sorry for the long answer, but I, people. Oh no, 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 no. We love long answers. It's taken, a, you know, I figure, well, we're a few years late. So can take a little time to explain why. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. It, it's very well justified. And uh, but but like you said, we hope to launch soon. Hope to get in space, commission for six months. What are some of the the science goals that you are particularly uh, fascinated by and captivated by when it comes to the James Webb? Oh, I mean, well, it was it was conceived originally to um, to see the end of the cosmic dark ages, right? Uh, explore an epic for which we have no observational data. You know, people have seen the, the cosmic microwave background. We've imaged that with Kobe and WMAP and Planck, right? And, um, uh, and Hubble and other telescopes on the ground and in space have been able to see back to pretty high redshifts, but not to the end of the cosmic dark ages and the era of reionization, right? So this telescope was primarily designed to do that. So that's pretty exciting because there's all kinds of scientists have all kinds of uh, ideas about how, you know, the, the lights turned on in the universe, but, you know, we don't know, nobody knows until you make direct observations, you, uh, you know, you're going to get surprised. Right. So um, that to, to me, that's super exciting. Um, but, you know, there's, there's a whole, there's whole fields of science that didn't even exist when Hubble, I mean, when mm -hmm. Webb was first conceived, right? Um, exoplanets or nobody was thinking about exoplanets, um, or astrobiology, uh, over 20 years ago. That's a new field of science, right? Well, now we know that planets are very common and missions like Kepler and Tess have found, uh, terrestrial planets in habitable zones around their parent stars. Um, you know, 
uh, web has the capability to spectroscopically, you know, analyze the chemistry of the atmospheres of some of these planets. Um, that's pretty exciting if we detect the kind of chemistry that we know is associated with life on Earth, which is our only example of life anywhere, right? But if we're sniffing atmospheres of exoplanets, nearby exoplanets, and we find methane, diatomic oxygen, water, carbon dioxide, uh, some other things that, you know, that's pretty, that's pretty exciting. So, but, you know, I, I think some of the greatest discoveries that um, Webb will make are probably answers to questions nobody has even thought of or imagined yet. Um, oh, I love that. Yeah. There's so yeah. much discovery potential with this machine. It's just, you know, whenever we look at nature with a new tool, we discover amazing things. And so that's the, the stuff nobody's thought of yet is the stuff I'm most excited about. Oh, that's perfect. Yeah. The, the, the stuff, uh, the stuff we don't know that we want to know, the stuff that we're not looking for is going to be the really exciting things. Uh, but speaking of looking, uh, Wes Strubing on YouTube, one of our space cadets is asking, uh, will the James Webb just see in the infrared or will it capture uh, other wavelengths at, as well? Like, like, how does this telescope actually work? Right. So there are four science instruments. Um, and there's three of them that's seen in near infrared. They use um, Mercury cadmium telluride detectors. They'll, they're sensitive from 0.6 microns, which is red light, visible red light, to five microns. Um, you know, the visible spectrum is from roughly 0.4 to 0.7 um, microns. And we'll, uh, those instruments will see from 0.6 to five. Um, and there's one mid-infrared instrument, which uses arsenic dope silicon detectors. Um, and it will, it will be sensitive from five to 28 microns. Um, and, uh, um, the, the whole telescope's passively cooled, uh, just by being in the shade of this five layer umbrella that you can see in the background. Um, we keep the telescope and the instruments in the shade of this. And just by being in the shade and always having the sun and the earth on this side, you know, the effective sink temperature of deep space from our, our place in the solar system is about seven Kelvin. So all of this will get down to temperatures in the, um, well below 60. Um, and in fact, the, the near infrared detectors will be, we've, we've, designed everything so that there'll be 37 Kelvin, which is a sweet spot bet compromise between sensitivity and, um, and, um, uh, and noise perform low noise performance. So, but the mid infrared detector technology, that stuff needs to be colder than seven Kelvin. It needs to be about six to work right. We're not going to get that passively. So we actually have a, 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 a refrigerator, a cryocooler that's going to cool that um, down to uh, the detectors in that one instrument down to uh, about 6.2. Um, and, uh, but yeah, so those are the instruments. That's our wavelength coverage. It's a pretty broad band of coverage. It's, um, and the reason, of course, the reason we want to do that with the original science objective was if you want to see the very first ultraviolet and visible light that that shined in the universe that was emitted by whatever the first luminous objects were, um, that ultraviolet invisible light has been redshifted so much um, because it happened so long ago that it appears to us today in the infrared part of the spectrum. And so 
we're actually looking for the original ultraviolet visible light with an infrared telescope today. And um, by having that wavelength coverage, we'll be able to see if those first stars were really, are they really the first stars? Because the first stars, there was only hydrogen and helium, right? There were no heavier elements or metals as astronomers call them. So if we see no metallicity and, you know, scientists see no metallicity in, you know, in the spectra of these super early um, stars or whatever the heck these first luminous objects were, you know, giant hypernovas or whatever they are, um, th there you go. So, uh, and then the mid-infrared instrument is going to be awesome for exoplanet stuff because those things happen at cold temperatures that are really bright. Um, and all these different spectral lines are really prom that we're looking for for chemistry of prominent in the infrared. So it's a really powerful tool. It's, um, yeah, hopefully that answers the question. <laughs> Absolutely. I love, I love your answers. Give us a sense of the scope of this James Webb team, like, you know, you're the deputy project manager technical, who do you report to? How many people are like, what, what's this org chart look like? Do I need my entire chalkboard in order to, to map it out? How many people are, are behind this instrument? Yeah, there's a lot of people. There's, there's a couple thousand people all over the world. I think it's 16 countries. Um, the, uh, the, just the project of, NASA Goddard people is pretty big. It's over a hundred people. I'm, I'm part of a four person, um, you know, management team. I report to the project manager who, uh, um, that's Bill Oaks. And, um, he, uh, uh, I'm one of his three deputies and, um, and then, you know, we have, we have a nine T manager, integration test manager, and he's our launch site manager. Um, and we have, man, observatory manager. We, we, we got a big org chart. <laughs> we got a lot of engineers, a lot of engineers. We got a big science team. Um, but yeah, right now, you know, this is the age of the engineer. We're building this for a purpose, which is for scientists to use it right around the world. But right, you know, the focus for all these years has been engineering. So it's an engineering heavy organization. Um, a lot of engineers, a lot of technicians from a lot of, from NASA, from a lot of companies, from universities, um, you know, two of the four instruments came from Europe. One came from, uh, Canada and it's also the guider that lock, you know, locks on acquires and is part of the, the, uh, attitude control system that points the telescope very steadily on targets. Um, the, uh, um, the, the reason we're launching on an Arian is because that's part of the European contribution to the mission. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's a huge worldwide effort, a couple thousand people at its peak. Um, there's hundreds of people working on it right now. Um, yeah, it's a big deal. It's a big org chart. <laughs> it's a big deal indeed. How do you manage your anxiety with this whole thing? Cause we only get one shot, right? It's, it's not like the Hubble where if something goes wrong, we can send the space shuttle up, you know, with, with some repair sure. people. Like, how do you manage your anxiety? How are you, how are you even breathing right now? <laughs> um, test, 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 you know? That's part of the reason it took so long, um, has taken so long. Um, we have to build objective evidence that this thing is gonna work. So we've spent a lot of time um, designing a test program and 
really bringing this thing out. It's hard to do on the ground because this thing's designed to deploy and operate in zero G in a vacuum, and we're doing this on the ground. So we have a lot of mechanical GSE that acts like a puppeteer on a marionette to offload things when we deploy them. Um, we've deployed things multiple times. Um, we built a lot of engineering models to validate the design so that we, when we built the flight design, we're not learning too much after we've built the flight hardware and we're not wearing it out. Um, a lot of engineering models, a lot of testing. Um, and, you know, we've, we've been very aggressive about managing risk. Um, we've had a lot of independent review. Uh, so, you know, there's, you can never eliminate all risk and there's still risk here because uh, the, primarily in the deployments, which happened the, the first two weeks of the mission. But um, I guess that's what allows me to deal with, with the uh, unknown and the anxiety is, you know, we've, we've done everything reasonable and um, we have a lot of smart people that have been really asking all the right questions and the hard questions. And um, yeah, a lot of testing. Test, test, test. Lot of testing. Two questions here from Space Cadets. One, Russell is asking, where is the Lagrange point? How far away from Earth are we talking? And then Stop with Camel is asking, who has priority use of the telescope? And, and like, if, if random member of the public wants to propose an observing program with the JWC, how would how they go about doing that? And when do they get to do that? Oh, those are great questions. So, yeah, uh, L2 is one of five Lagrange points in any three-body gravitational problem. There's five solutions for where the three bodies kind of bounce each other out. And we're going to L2, which is um, a million and a half kilometers or a million miles approximately away in the anti-sun, in the midnight direction. So there's sun, earth, and then L2. So we're about 1% farther away from the sun at L2 than, than Earth is. It's about four times farther away than the moon. So it's, it's deep space, but it's not like deep space, like going to Mars or, or say Juno out at Jupiter or, or you know, really deep like New Horizons or Voyager 1 and 2. But you know, we're, we're outside the Earth's magnetosphere. We're, we're out in the breeze, so to speak, in the solar system. Um, about a million miles away, and we'll be orbiting this L2 point in, a, in, a, in an orbit that's actually bigger than the moon's orbit around the Earth. And every six months, we'll make one loop around this L2 point. Um, let's see. Uh, and there's other spacecraft there like WMAP, Herschel, Planck. It's, it's kind of the Mauna Kea of, or the Sarah Perinal of space observatories. It's a great place to put an observatory like this, because you can keep the sun and the Earth on one side, and you can have darkness on the other side. Um, let's see the, uh, yeah, getting time on the telescope. That's the coin of the realm, right? Great question. Um, it's a double blind merit-based selection process. So people propose in um, annual cycles. So we just had cycle one, for example, and um, there's, it's called a general observer program. So some of the scientists that have been with the telescope a long time and built the, were, were principal investigators on the instruments, they get, they're called GTOs, guaranteed time observers. And that, that's part of the exchange of them working on the program for so long and helping make it, help build it. But most 
observers are, are, are um, general observers or GO and they're solicited in an annual cycle. We just had cycle one and picked and they were all picked and it's a double blind process where um, scientists read these proposals. They don't know who sent them because um, you don't want to have bias and um, uh, basically they're selected on the compelling science um, story that, that, that is told in the proposal that, that the potential for the great discovery. So, um, uh, and they touch on all the different themes that, that Webb is um, capable of, of investigating. So, um, uh, and, and like, I think we had five, we had so many people propose that it would have been five times more time than there is clock time, right, to actually observe which is kind of like what Hubble does. It's a very similar process to how general observers are selected for Hubble. It's a merit-based process and way more people uh, propose than, than can get selected, but, but it's great. You get great proposals and um, uh, pretty much anybody can do it, but you know, it, it does help if you're, you know, you, you, you need to know a lot about it. Does help, it does help to know what you're doing. Yeah. It helps to know what you're doing. You can't just do it like a, couple hours on Google and go, yeah, I got this. And then submit a proposal. It's probably not going to, probably not going to work out. Not going to make yeah, anybody it very propose. far. Anybody can propose. Yep. Unfortunately, this great interview is about to come to a close, but I do have one last question for you. You're in French Guiana. You're prepping for the launch. It's about to go up. You're going to have a toast to the James Webb before it goes up and begins its operations. What cheese are you bringing to that toast? What is your favorite kind of cheese? Um, I, that's a hard pick. So I really I like, yeah, I, so I like Munster and I like really good fresh mozzarella, like with a caprese and I Ooh, like, um, yes. and, and any kind of quasi sharp cheddar. I'm a big yeah. fan. Of All right. So we can, yeah. we can go for, we can go for a, a plate here. Okay. A little plat de fromage. You know, you get, you, you got your that, little... Yeah. <laughs> it's charcuterie minus the meat and, and just the good stuff. So good. yeah. So I'll, let's have some nice, fresh mozzarella di buffalo to, uh, to, to send off James Webb. Paul Geithner, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. It was a delight to have you on and good luck with the rest of the mission. We are all counting on you. And if it blows up, it's all your fault. Gotcha. <laughs> Thank you. My pleasure. All Dean. right. Absolutely. That was so much fun. Paul Geithner was a champ. He was so apologetic. Uh, he had their major technical issues on his end, which never happened to me. Oh no, 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 no. I never have technical issues on this show. Speaking of, Issues. I've got an issue with this cheese that I'm unwrapping thanks to our good friends, my best friends, Asta and Andreas over at domscheese.com, D-O-M-S cheese.com. Today, this morning, they gave me a cabriolet. Cabriolet. If you look this up, there is the most adorable. I only got a small slice of it, by the way. But if you look at like with the label and everything, there's the most adorable little lamb, little goat, I guess. Uh, this is a raw goat's milk cheese, washed rind, selected at one month old, aged for an additional two months. 
by extending the affinage period, the typical gamey aftertaste found in goat's milk cheeses, I don't notice that, is barely recognizable, making Cabriolet an excellent gateway cheese. Folks, folks, we have a self-described gateway cheese into the realm of goat cheese. If you're like, well, I like goat cheeses, but I don't like the aftertaste. Because it's not venison, people. Oh, it smells amazing. That's just a tiny bit of, bit of funk. Exploding pancakes. Thank you for the super chat. And Wes Strubing, thank you for the super chat. Wow. Trappist-style washed rind, typically in a six-pound wheel with a traditional rennet found in Belgium. Pac-Man 7. <laughs> just testing. Hey, it works. Thank you. Sweet and mild and nutty aroma. Paste is ivory. Wait, we call the middle part the paste? I don't like that. I don't like that terminology. Notes of toasted bread and butter. <laughs> Subdued goatee tang. Goatee tang, folks. This is the whole phrase we are using to describe a subdued goatee tang. Let's do it. Cabriolet. That's Dom's Cheese, D-O-M-S-Cheese.com. Mmm. I'm looking for that subdued goody chain. Mmm. Mmm. You know what it tastes like? Wow. You know what it tastes like? That bread and butter notes. I'm not kidding about that. That is fascinating. It tastes like a really, really good grilled cheese sandwich. I am not kidding here. I know that's so American of me, but I can't help it. This cabriolet... It's like a grilled cheese, like a real, like not, not like a just cheap one, like a really nice, like thick bread, lots of butter, you know, layers of cheese and like maybe some garlic in there. Mm, mm, mm. I don't, I don't have a hint of goatee tang in this. All I get is that wonderful, it tastes like a grilled cheese sandwich. So if you're, if you like love grilled cheese sandwiches, but are gluten free or you love grilled cheese sandwiches, but it's. You know, like 10 o'clock at night, get yourself some cabriolet or you love grilled cheese sandwiches, but you're dressed up in a tuxedo or a cocktail dress. Mm. Get yourself some cabriolet and you can, you can, you can, you know, hit that urge. I love this. This is fun. Thank you so much to Paul Geidner for showing up today. Wonderful interview. Thank you, Nancy Graziano, for arranging Paul, getting him on the show wrangling the space cadets producing the show in the back end guys i need your help to keep the show going you have patreon.com slash pm sutter you can also drop a super chat in the chat right now if you're listening live but listen you can catch the live stream every thursday at 8 p.m eastern visit spaceradioshow.com for all those links and of course thank you again space cadets for listening and remember science is for sharing end of transmission <laughs>